Welcome to Impact AI, the podcast for startups who want to create a better future through the use of machine learning. I'm your host, Heather Couture. Today, I'm joined by Patrick Lung, co-founder and CTO of Earthshot Labs, to talk about ecological restoration and carbon projects. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Heather. It's really great to be here. Patrick, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Earthshot Labs? Sure. My background is computer science, mathematics, AI, and finance. And basically, I spent a lot of time in the tech industry, both as an entrepreneur as well as working at Google for over 10 years on various projects, including Google Maps and emerging markets and the Google Duplex conversational AI system that was launched with great fanfare about three or four years ago. And then after Google, I worked for a couple of years as the CTO of Two Sigma Investments private investing division. So Two Sigma is a one of the world's largest algorithmic hedge funds. So they use machine learning to predict the stock market essentially and run a fund based on that. And so I was applying machine learning to the private investing process where they had some private equity and a venture fund that I was working on applying alternative data and machine learning to. And then at some point I had a really big awakening around nature. I'm originally from New Zealand. And so nature has always been a big part of my life um, before I moved to New York City. And I really reawakened to that. And I really became very present to the ecological destruction that's happening in the world right now, the deforestation and the climate change and the hosts of other ecological sort of consequences of our destructive relationship with land and with nature. And so I really had a very strong calling to bring my knowledge of machine learning and technology and AI and all these useful things, finance, into the space of ecological restoration and conservation. And shortly after having that realization, I was in Hawaii at the time and I met my co-founder, Troy Carter, who has a background in regenerative agriculture, like growing giant bamboo in the Philippines and elsewhere to form really useful lumber. And he had some experience with the carbon markets. And so we got together and really started brainstorming how might we use ecological science and the carbon markets and AI and technology to essentially regenerate large amounts of land throughout the world in order to counter all these ecological collapses that are happening. So that was the original genesis of Earthshot, and it's grown a lot since then. So what does Earthshot do, and why is this important for ecological restoration? Yeah, so currently there is quite a severe shortage of high-quality carbon projects, meaning projects that corporations can use to offset their emissions. And in our opinion, the best form of carbon project is those that involve nature, either the restoration of nature, which involves sequestering carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere, as well as a host of other benefits that come along with the restoration of ecosystems, as well as conservation, whereby we prevent the deforestation and the destruction of ecosystems, and therefore we prevent the emissions of those of that biomass into the atmosphere and elsewhere. What we do is we, through our knowledge and through the models we've built for ecological forecasting and our knowledge of the carbon markets and ecological restoration and all sorts of other domains, we bring much needed financing to these nature projects that in many cases are not typically financeable without the carbon markets. For instance, if we're talking about a 10,000 hectare project in a place like Panama or Peru or Brazil, and we have projects in all three of those regions of this scale, it can cost $25 million, basically gather seeds and build nurseries and plant saplings and do all the necessary care and fire prevention and other 
things that are needed for a healthy ecosystem to recover and to grow. And that's a lot of money for an area that size. And so what we're finding, what we have found through our conversations with some of the largest NGOs in the world is that they're sitting on a lot of land that is badly in need of restoration and lacks the financing to do so. And so we fill that gap through our ecological scientific models and through our machine learning and through uh, the financial projections we put together based on all of that technology and through a host of other things that our incredible team does, we're able to actually bridge that financing gap and unlock a whole bunch of new projects that can then be in the carbon marketplace and also bring a host of benefits to both the ecosystem as well as the communities that live around the ecosystem. And what role does machine learning play in this technology? Well, machine learning is really essential because what we're trying to do here is predict the future. We're trying to predict the next 30 years of a forest regrowing in a tropical region. We're also getting into mangrove ecosystems as well. And ecosystems, as we know, are complex things. There's a lot of different factors that play into the regrowth of trees. We also have the complicating factor of climate change and its various effects on the ecosystem and on the ways trees grow. And what we really want for these projects to be financeable is a very accurate view on both the growth of biomass, so essentially in aggregate, how many trees are going to grow and how much are they going to weigh, because that directly speaks to how much carbon dioxide is going to be removed from the atmosphere and therefore the return profile of a carbon project. But also the risks, like the likelihood and the extent and effect of things like wildfire and drought and pests on the ecosystem and particularly how that perturbs the biomass projections. And so all these things involve prediction. Therefore, we must look at the past. We must look at whatever data we can gather from the past state of the ecosystem and use various machine learning methods to predict the future in order to provide a view on what's going to happen on this land in the future when we do this project. So there's a lot, there's a lot of computer vision as well. We have an app called Biome that measures trees using a combination of computer vision and augmented reality. And why is measuring trees so important? Well, you need to gather ground truth information to actually train these models because the diameter of a tree is a very fundamental measure of the size and the, uh, the biomass of the ecosystem. And so we can't get that from just satellite data. We can't just use remote sensing data to be able to accurately forecast this. We need to have an existing view on the actual ground truth stocks, carbon stocks on the land, and that we get by measuring trees. And traditionally, this is done using tape measures and stakes and mallet and rope. And we have a smartphone app now that can do this through the power of computer vision and augmented reality. We can actually replace those traditional tools and speed up the process five to 10 times faster. So it sounds like maybe you're using two types of data. One is the local observations of trees and the other is the remote sensing data. Is that right? Or are there other forms of data that are part of this? Yeah, that's exactly right. There are definitely other forms of data that are needed in order to put together a viable carbon project. A lot of those pertain to information about the developer who's going to be doing the reforestation and information about the history of the land. But the really the bread and butter of doing the ecological forecasting is the combination of the remote sensing data combined with whatever field data we can gather from the literature. So we have, we do spend a significant amount of time going through existing scientific literature and other forms of historical data that we can pull out from the internet in order to augment our models and provide historical ground truth information. And then we have our biome tool that gathers current on the ground observations 
to provide a view on the current carbon stocks. So in some ways, there's three different types of data. There's the remote sensing, there's the historical literature data, and then there's the field observations that our own technology can gather. And how do you go about gathering and annotating this data for your machine learning models? Well, one of the big examples of annotation with what we're doing is species classification. So, of course, when you go out there into a tropical rainforest, there's many, many different types of trees. And so it's not enough to just measure the tree. You have to actually also label its species. And that is very tricky. It's something that probably many of the listeners out there have seen these apps that allow you to kind of classify a house plant by basically taking a photo and it'll tell you what kind of plant it is with some degree of accuracy. But when you walk into a tropical rainforest, that gets way more complex because the trees are themselves are more complex, like their trunks and roots tend to be very asymmetrical and very kind of complex shaped. And you also have pretty complex and overlapping landscapes to look at in order to differentiate, like what is the tree that's standing in front of me as opposed to the trees that are adjacent to it and behind it and so on. And so what we do is we gather a certain critical mass of photos, including bark and fruit and leaves and seeds and so on. And we have expert biologists, botanists, basically manually classify that data and train a computer vision model to the point where it's sufficiently accurate, where we can actually put it inside the app and use it to automatically classify the species of a certain number of different trees in the rainforest. So what other kind of challenges do you encounter in working with these different types of data? Well, there's a lot of challenges in doing what we're doing because both of the complexity of the ecosystems we're talking about, like tropical rainforests, and because of the fact that we're now seeing conditions on the planet that have not been seen before because of climate change and the other effects of deforestation. And so predicting the future within any sort of reasonable time frame or with any degree of accuracy becomes super challenging. The traditional approach that hedge funds and other groups that are in the business of predicting the future use is to analyze the past and to look at historical trends and use some kind of time series or forecasting method to predict the future. And that's all very well if you're forecasting stock prices for the next couple of months, which is the kind of the thing, that, which is the central problem that groups like Two Sigma and other algorithmic hedge funds kind of solve. But if you're talking about a complex ecosystem's growth over the course of 30 years, which is a typical time frame for a carbon project, that becomes also being perturbed by climate change and its resulting factors, some of which I mentioned before. That becomes really much more complex. And so what we're doing is we're actually complementing and augmenting the machine learning models that we've built with land surface models. These are actual mathematical simulations that take into account the current conditions of the ecosystem and actually forecast them by using a kind of a simulation that incorporates photosynthesis and evapotranspiration and other forms of ecological processes and actually forms kind of like a simulation of a simplified ecosystem and gives you the outcome over the course of every year, as far as biomass accumulation and as far as the effects of forest fire and biodiversity and all this kind of thing. So we are combining empirical methods, machine learning, with land service models, but it's complex and it is something of a new area, like combining these two different methods to come up with a unified ecological forecast. So that's a challenge. And it means that we have to hire special people who know all about these models and who have spent their whole careers fine-tuning them and building them and so on. And it's a lot of fun, and it's definitely a significant technical challenge. So it sounds like there's a lot of technical and biological, ecological, you know, many different domains of knowledge that come into this. 
How does your machine learning team collaborate with other organizations and domain experts to make this work? We have built a certain amount of, let's say, diversity in terms of the skill sets in our science team. So the science team, we have some people who are specialists in land service models, and we have some people who are computer vision specialists, and we have botanists, and we have people who are biodiversity experts and really versant in all the different methods that one can use to measure biodiversity on the ground. There's a whole host of different visual and audio and other forms of observations one can make to really provide information about the biodiversity of a given area. And in terms of other other teams in the organization, we have an operations team that essentially is the client of the science team in the sense that they source and put together the projects. And one of the major inputs into those projects is, of course, the ecological forecast that tells people essentially how much biomass is going to be accumulated on a given land parcel over the course of the next 30 years. And so they are the ones who provide information around this is the location of the project and this is the history and these are the people who are participating in the project and so on. And so there's a really, and here's the order of priority that we need these projects to be analyzed in. And so they're a really important stakeholder that is in constant communication with the science team to essentially form the work queue that the science team processes. I would say another group definitely is the business development team. So they're the ones who take the projects and bring them in front of investors and corporations and get them financed. And so they typically have feedback from those groups who look at the forecasts and say, well, why does the growth look like this? Or what are the assumptions underpinning some of your forecasts? And like, what is the likelihood of certain sort of things happening like the forest fires? And there's typically questions that need to get answered in order for an investor or a corporation to become comfortable with getting involved and buying into the project. The science team also interacts with those groups. And there's often amongst the more experienced investors there's feedback and, you know, wouldn't it be great if we saw this kind of graph or this kind of metric, or if you presented the information in this kind of way, that's an important source of input and feedback and requirements into the science team as well. And then of course, there's also the software engineering teams because we package and present the output of the scientific models in a web-based application called LandOS. And so the LandOS tool can be used to really, in a very flexible way, conduct what-if scenarios, like what if more money was put into this project, or what if we want a higher percentage of the project's revenues to be shared with the community, or what if the costs end up being twice as much or some factor as much as we think they're going to be, what is the impact on the feasibility of this project? And so LandOS really embodies a lot of knowledge, both on the scientific side, but also in terms of the various rules and the process by which a project becomes compliant with an external carbon standard like Vera, and we work with very closely. And so that's, so the software team, the, the LandOS team and the Biome team, which is the app I mentioned before that measures trees, these are really important collaborators with the science team as well. And externally, we're constantly running into other groups that are working on adjacent areas, whether it's other ecosystems or whether it's specializing in certain forms of measurement, like biodiversity measurement and so on, or whether it's vendors of data, like you know, planet.com or Maxar or other groups that have come up with this really super high temporal and spatial resolution data with these microsatellites. So data vendors are another important group that we interact with externally uh, and also other groups that are doing carbon-related projects. We have had an increasing number of groups coming to us and wanting to actually tap into the expertise of our science team to help them with their own ecological forecasting as well. So that's an area that we're getting into as well. So it is a very complicated landscape of different parties, both within Earthshot 
the organization as well as externally that our science team and our machine learning people have to or get the opportunity to interact and collaborate with. Yeah, it definitely seems like a large group, but I, it sounds like it's also very essential to have these many different points of view and expertise in order to make this work. Very much so, yeah. So machine learning has been advancing so rapidly. Many problems don't need the latest and greatest, but some would not be practical without it. Is there any specific advancement that has made it possible to build your technology now that would have made it infeasible a few years ago? Well, I think the real best example of that is we have a project called Deep Forest that uses generative adversarial networks. So GANs are, GAN is the acronym. So GANs are the technology that are behind deep fakes. You might have seen these kind of videos where people people's faces are superimposed on other people's bodies or there's various other ways of manipulating images automatically in a very realistic way. And so we're actually using that very same neural network architecture, the GAN architecture, to essentially um, generate satellite imagery from the future. So I met a group called the Frontier Development Lab who joined our Earthshot community um, a couple of years ago. And they had done some really interesting work on using GANs to generate flood imagery. So they would look at historical flood maps and essentially combine them with flood forecasting models in order to generate what is a given area going to look like if it gets flooded in the future because of climate change or for other reasons. And I was very enamored with that. I thought that was a very, very clever use of a technology that was otherwise looking like it was being used for some pretty trivial things, maybe even sort of iffy things. And I thought, well, that's a really positive use of the GAN technology. And so I, I immediately thought, well, clearly we need to try this out using reforestation because it's adjacent to what they're doing with the flood mapping. And so we got in contact with Bjorn, who's a researcher at MIT, who, took the, who was leading that flood mapping effort. And we've been collaborating with him and essentially building our own model for generating satellite imagery that shows the effects of reforestation. So it shows you sort of a, you, maybe many of you out there have seen those kind of before and after images of reforestation where you look at the canonical example is the Lotus Plateau in China where that inspired many people, including John D. Liu, who's a great ecological filmmaker and so on. But basically there are these kind of before and after photos that say here's the desert and here's the 30 years after photo that shows all the greenery that was that came out of this beautiful reforestation project. So I thought, well, why don't we, create a GAN that can generate that inspiring before and after imagery for a reforestation project. And so we, during the course of the last year, we built that and we have a model that can generate, given the current conditions of parcel of land, it can simulate with some degree of accuracy the visual effect, like the visual impact of reforestation and generate satellite imagery from the year 2050. So we're really proud of this. This is really cool. And it would not have been possible 10 years ago, I don't think because GANs didn't exist then. And so we'd have to use Photoshop or some other more basic method of generating that imagery. And so I think that's really exciting that we're out there using some pretty cutting edge technology to add value to our projects and to make them more inspiring and to help people visualize what's gonna happen over the next 30 years. So in addition to a stack of numbers and some graphs, you also have this beautiful imagery that shows you what this area is gonna look like when it's been reforested. And yeah, there's other examples too. I think that some of the computer imagery, some of the computer vision classification methods that we're using in the app, and also, hey, you know, we're taking advantage of the LiDAR device on an iPhone. If it's present, we use that for depth mapping. And that didn't exist more than three years ago. Like you couldn't get a smartphone with a LiDAR device on it, I don't think. 
maybe there were some peripherals you could plug into it, but certainly it wasn't built in. And obviously there's still only a small percentage of the smartphones that have that kind of device built in. So we can fall back to other methods if the LiDAR device is not there. But if it is there, we get a beautiful depth map that has, I don't know, something like a 10 meter range. And that's super valuable and super useful. And it didn't exist before. So it's really great to be able to tap into some of this more recent technology and then bring it into service of ecosystem restoration. It feels really good to be able to tap into some of the recent advances and various forms of technology in what we do. So there's some really interesting examples. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? Well, other so advice to other leaders, I would say, well, machine learning always requires patience. Like, I think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking about machine learning as being sort of standard software development where you come up with an idea and you prototype it and then you build it and it sort of works. And machine learning doesn't always work like that. It's a lot more researchy where you, you got to never forget that you have a thesis that something might be able to be predicted and you got to sort of evaluate whether that thesis is correct and it might well not be and that's okay because I think that what I've observed in the past and I think I myself when I first really got into this sort of felt more like well it's a software development project so as long as I'm using agile and I'm sort of doing my two-week sprints and you know I, I have my kind of pro rapid prototyping process set up then we'll get there and there were some projects where I didn't get there. <laughs> and uh, actually, my thesis was incorrect. Like, no, actually, you can't use this kind of model to be able to predict, say, the default rate on a portfolio of different insurance products. And you got to go back to the drawing board and try again. And so we've had a little bit of that at Earthshot as well, where we had these kind of ideas around using machine learning in certain ways to maybe generate a certain type of a map of biomass with a certain level of resolution in a certain region. And it just didn't work out as well as we thought it would and so we had to go back and re-examine re our assumptions so you know machine learning does exist on that interface between software engineering and science you know and a sort of a research-driven process it also so if you if you uh, i'll invoke uh, my friend drew conway who is someone i a very brilliant data scientist that i worked with back at two sigma and he had this famous diagram he put together that which is like the venn diagram of data science and he sort of drew this venn diagram that had hacking, which I guess I'll more generously call software engineering, as well as sort of the modeling aspect, which is the experimental application of statistics to solve problems. And then the third circle in that Venn diagram was domain expertise, was really knowing and understanding the problem domain that you're getting into. So this is where the ecologists and the land restoration specialists that we have on our team represent that part of the Venn diagram. But if you only have two of those circles, you're kind of in a danger zone. You're at risk of assuming that machine learning can solve everything when it's simply another tool in your belt or sort of playing around with machine learning models without really having a solid software engineering process behind it to package up the results in ways that are useful for people. Or worst perhaps is dabbling with machine learning and software engineering, but not having the requisite domain knowledge to actually know what's, what problem you're solving or know what impact you're going to have. And so for those of you who are curious, if you just go and Google Drew Conway data science Venn diagram, then you can see the diagram in all its glory. But I, I often fall back to that as a mental model for really holding like what's needed to be sort of successful in this area. But I'll definitely go back to that first idea that I presented, which is that there is a scientific aspect to this, which is the succession of hypotheses that you set out to prove with machine learning. 
And that is quite different from straight up software engineering and something people need to get used to. Also, another thing, <laughs> how can I forget? Feature engineering. So people get so focused on modeling, which is kind of the sexy stuff of predicting the future or you know, predicting the present or whatever the case may be. But actually the massaging of data, the onboarding of data and the formation, the engineering features that serve as inputs into predictive models is a lot less sexy, but at least as important because if the model doesn't have high quality inputs, then it's not going to be able to perform. So definitely feature engineering, I think, is an area that doesn't get as much attention as all the latest neural architectures and all the latest, you know, transformer architectures and all this kind of stuff that people become enamored with. But it's really, really important as well. So that's just a handful of things. I mean, there's a lot there, but hopefully it gives people an idea. Yeah, those are definitely helpful. And finally, where do you see the impact of Earthshot in three to five years? Well, our goal is to restore and protect as much natural biodiverse ecosystems as we can. And in doing so, to provide benefit to communities such that there's never any risk of those forests being cut down for firewood or for cattle ranching or other typical reasons that forests get removed. And so we really seek to have global impact with what we're doing. And so we're looking to restore millions of hectares. Like this is the order of magnitude that's needed. Actually more than that, really the world needs tens or even hundreds of millions of hectares of land to be restored and protected and just taken care of and valued. This is a major shift for humanity. Like we don't currently by and large behave in that kind of way. And so I would say in the five to 10 year time frame, just to extend the scope of your question, I would say that I would want Earthshot to have to play a key role in really the shift from the extractive civilization and economic systems that we have today to a regenerative civilization whereby we actually put nature front and center of everything we do because we are nature and whether it's food or fuel or fiber or any number of other critical things that we need to actually run a civilization in the first place, these things all come from nature. And so we need to have a sustainable and an enriching and a regenerative relationship with nature, or we will eventually destroy ourselves, which is kind of what's happening right now. I think what we're doing definitely encompasses biodiverse native ecosystems and just restoring as many of them as we can throughout the most critical parts of the biosphere that there are in this world, and also helping to switch our societal systems into more of a harmonious and regenerative relationship with those ecosystems. So I know that's a really tall order and I know it's really ambitious but we have the knowledge we have the technology we have the will we just need to execute on our vision we need to inspire others because the world needs hundreds of earth shots out there thousands of earth shot like organizations out there dedicated to this mission and we're seeing that it's very refreshing to run into other organizations like perennial and like pachama and like cultivo and like all manner of other nature loving organizations that are applying machine learning and technology to this great mission and to this great transformation that humanity needs to go through. I definitely look forward to seeing how things go and with you and all these other organizations tackling very important problems. Patrick, this has been great. Your team at Earthshot Labs is doing really interesting work for ecological restoration. I expect that the insights you've shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? Well, our website is at earthshot.eco. That's earthshot.eco. And we have a blog and a podcast and lots of information about our projects and our technology on the website. And also feel free to join our Slack community. There's a link on the website to that as well. And yeah, just definitely welcome people to come to the website. There's a lot of information there. And you can find me on LinkedIn as well.
perfect. I'll link to all of that in the show notes. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Heather. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about this very, very important topic, and it's been really fun. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI.